Today is a special episode of the Canadian Psychological Association podcast, published outside our normal schedule. It was one of those times where I thought, wouldn't it be cool to have a podcast episode published the very same day that the book we're discussing gets published? And that's exactly what I'm doing as we're talking to the author of the new book, How to Be Resilient in Your Career, Facing Up to Barriers at Work. My name is Eric Bowman. I'm the communications person at the CPA, and this is Mindful. There's a lot of talk we hear about building diversity in the workplace, about inclusion and creating a welcoming environment. But what often gets lost in the discussion are the people for whom we want to create a welcoming and comfortable work environment. What do we tell the person who's experiencing barriers in their career? Who isn't sure they even want to be in their current job or situation? This is the domain of industrial organizational psychologists like our guest today, who has written a book just for those people. I'm Dr. Helen Ofosu. I'm a work and business psychologist within the field that's industrial and organizational psychology. And I've been using this background to offer a range of things that all link back to psychology. So I offer career coaching, executive coaching, some training, and uh, some HR services. And we're going to talk about your brand new book. Congratulations on the new book, by the way. It's called How to Be Resilient in Your Career, Facing Up to Barriers at Work. And uh, you made the distinction while we were just speaking there, while you introduced yourself between work and business psychology and industrial and organizational psychology, uh, which you do in the book as well. And I'm hoping that we can start there. What is the difference? Is one a term that psychologists use for a branch of psychology and the other sort of a more palatable and understandable term for the general public? Or is there a more specific distinction there? That's the distinction that I usually make. So if I'm talking to psychologists, they may be familiar with the IO psychology, the industrial organizational, or more commonly organizational. In the real world, that title often exceeds the characters you have to explain what your job title is. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so clunky. So I, I don't use it that often. And especially since my work usually falls into the domain of supporting people in their careers. So that's the work piece or supporting business owners with their leadership, with their work. So that's the business piece. Right. I When I first started at the CPA and I first heard industrial organizational psychology, I had this, I guess, picture of, you know how in the movies, they always end the movie, the action movie with a fight scene in a big factory that just seems to make steam and fire, but no one knows what it does. Like yes. I pictured psychologists working in that, uh, in that, yes. factory, right? you know, it is madness. We need to rebrand that. <laughs> Well, part of that rebranding might be this book that you've written. You said in the book uh, at one point, you're offering a few resources and suggesting to people, especially people of color in this particular section, uh, that it might be difficult for them to find mentors in their careers. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, certainly a mentor who has the same life experiences that they do, who has, who's able to come at their position from a similar position. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so you suggest watching Ted talks, finding external online mentors in that sort of way. Mm -hmm. Is that one of the goals of writing this book is to be one of those 
external mentors uh, that people can access and, and learn more uh, in that respect. You know what? You you're you're correct. I didn't when I when I started. I guess I wasn't thinking of it that way, but it absolutely can be a resource to support people who don't have access to mentorship. You are dealing with you know huge organizations, and I wanted to talk about the beginning of your career. And mm-hmm. you said that you. Uh, started working as a personnel psychologist mm-hmm. in the federal government, but that that wasn't a job title that existed in other departments, that you were sort of in a, I guess, a silo all unto yourself. And so it didn't allow for a lot of lateral movement. It didn't allow for a lot of upward movement. And that was one of the catalysts for you to start your own consulting company. Exactly. Uh, and you said at that time, there weren't a lot of personnel psychologists in the federal government. Is that a position that exists more now in the government, in major corporations, in huge industries, that kind of thing? Well, it's still it's still a, a huge employer of psychologists across the country. I believe it's smaller now than it was when I was there. Some people seem to have been kind of seconded off to another government department to do similar work. So, you know, the size of the organization wasn't really the the limit. The real limit was that within the public service, there were only four levels, like so four rungs on the corporate ladder. And I was at the top of that rung. I think I had one more rung I could get, but a lot of those positions were at Corrections Canada. And I didn't think that was a great fit for me. Right. So, <laughs> so, you know, so when you feel like you have more to offer and you don't really want to be stuck at the same spot from, you know, the age of 30 something until whenever you retire, sometimes you got to look somewhere different. And so that's part of what precipitated my uh, my adventure in the private sector. A lot of your book is about feeling like you have more to offer. The idea of being underemployed, that you, uh, you know, obviously could be doing more with the education that you have, the experience that you have, and feeling stuck in a position uh, where you're not working to your full potential. One of the things that you did say in this segment, though, I, I thought was very illuminating is, I wish I had had this book when I started my career. Right. And you also say that when you started your career, when you started going to grad school, that if you were to do it today, you might not take the career path of becoming a PhD psychologist. You might not do that much schooling. So I'm wondering, you know, is this uh, a book, sort of a revisionist take on your own career? If you had to do it all over again, what would you have done differently? Yeah, great question. I mean, on the one hand, having the PhD in psychology has definitely opened some doors for me. But over the years, I've noticed that other people who have a master's degree and sometimes, you know, just their undergrad have also been very successful and kind of branded themselves using psychology as part of that package. So, you know, given that university is so much more expensive now than it was back then, I don't know whether I would have done the same thing. The conventional wisdom still seems to be that if you go through university, the more education you get, the more degrees that you end up with, the better your job prospects will be. And you seem to be saying in this book, well, that's not necessarily the case anymore. It certainly was at 
one time many years mm-hmm. ago, but now, you know, you include a lot of anecdotes about people who, you know, have a degree in mechanical engineering or chemical engineering who are working at, you know, as Uber drivers or, you know, in a coffee shop or that sort of thing who cannot get the work or have not yet been able to get the work that is commensurate with their level of education. Yeah, I, I've just been shocked and floored over the years running into people at the copy center or other places where, you know, back in the day, these are people who would have been earning good money. And those roles they were in seemed just barely above minimum wage. So clearly things are different now than they were some years ago. But I think one theme that is true is that to be successful, having good skills and abilities is no longer enough. I think that, uh, you know, all of those soft skills, you know, having the communication skills, the good personality, the initiative, the hustle, all kinds of other things are probably just as important. When I look back at who I know who's successful now, many of the people who are most successful were not the ones who were the best at their field. They were okay or they were good, but they may not have been the rock stars. The people who seem to be really successful are people who are well-connected. So having adequate skills and knowing how to use them, but also having other people recognizing that they were pretty good and vouching for them and creating opportunities for them. That's where the magic seems to happen. So, you know, every time I see somebody who's very much head down, just trying to do the great work and hoping that that will break open everything for them, I don't think that's the way. Even for me right now, I've got this book that honestly I think is spectacular, but I think I might need to hire a publicist or else nobody might ever hear of it. So it's a kind of a, an interesting parallel. It's not it's not a message that I would share with just certain people. I think it's it kind of applies across the board. That brings up this notion of, I, I guess, self-promotion in a way, right? <laughs> and this is something that I, I know I've always struggled with through my whole career is the idea of calling attention to myself, right? <laughs> uh, and, and you do mention this in in a chapter on imposter syndrome, people who have trouble accepting, uh, you know, compliments and awards and recognition and that sort of thing, because they don't feel like that's why they should be doing the work. They don't feel like that's, you know, appropriate to them. But without that, then you have a hard time making those connections that you're describing, right? Well, that's it. And if you've earned it, I think you should accept it. (laughs) 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 <laughs> and I'm the same way. I'm not very, you know, I'm, I'm kind of low key in my personal life for sure. But, you know, sometimes you have to explain what you're capable of or else nobody would know otherwise, especially in this online world. I mean, for goodness sake. Uh, I'll tell you a little anecdote about when I got hired on at the CPA a couple of years ago. I go into the interview and at the end of the interview, they ask, you know, oh, have you won any awards or any? And I thought, well, uh, And it genuinely struck me as a very strange question, right? I'd come from years and years in radio and awards were something that we on our show poo-pooed, right? You you have to apply for an award. You have to send in a tape. We're not going to bother with all that. Who cares about it, right? But I did actually win an award from Rogers, 
mm-hmm. across Canada award for community builder of the year and that sort of thing. And, you know, put me on the short list for employee of the year for all of Rogers. And I said, well, like there was that. And they said, well, why didn't you include it on your resume? Well, I received it and I was fired eight days later, uh, right? <laughs> it, uh, it didn't seem important at the time and uh, still kind of doesn't seem important uh, many years later, right? And I think more so than the awards and whatnot, it's more about, uh, you know, the expression, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah. But also, quite often, it's not only who you know, but who knows you, right? right. Because if you're amazing and nobody knows you're amazing, you may not have a great career. Right. So that's so that's the networking piece, making sure that other people know who you are, know what you're good at. Because if those things are in, pay, in place, there's a chance that when they know of opportunities, have introductions to make, or need somebody to join their team, they can think of you. But if those other things aren't in place, you're just not on anybody's radar, so you might languish. This is something that you talk about in your section on underemployment. And, you know, one of the groups that would have the biggest difficulty with that would be newcomers, immigrants to, to Canada, where they don't have a network here at all. They have a terrific qualifications back where they've come from, but now they're here in Canada. Those qualifications don't necessarily translate. And the one thing I thought of when I was reading that chapter was that we have this system of immigration here in Canada that in many ways is a merit-based system. You mm-hmm. have obtained a degree in your country in whatever you know subject that may be. That qualifies you to come over here. We want you to be a skilled worker. But we have no system in place for you to then translate that qualification into employment here. And as you point out in your book, so often you end up working as an Uber driver. You end up working, you know, in construction. Or uh, I'm thinking of my friend Herman, who was a neurologist in Venezuela. And when I met him, he was working as a personal support worker at a long-term care facility here in Ottawa because there was no opportunity. I ended up. I ended up writing a profile for him for the Dementia Society uh, of him as a volunteer with the Dementia Society and what he was doing as a long in long-term care. And he ended up getting hired as a result of that because so many people read it and said, well, I didn't know Herman was a neurologist. Well, let's give him more to do, right? But uh, until you tell people, until you have that connection, it doesn't really translate, right? Absolutely. And I mean, our system is great in many respects, but there are some gaps. And it's at at least not all newcomers are falling into those those gaps. It seems that in certain fields, people have an easier transition in certain branches of engineering, mathematics, physics, you know, all those, some of those STEM uh, disciplines, people have a, a much better path. Where then are the more difficult paths? What sort of, uh, areas is it more difficult to make that move Uh, the ones that i know of in particular up close and personal are law medicine nursing because there are local certifications and you know not everybody who arrives has the time to spend a couple years taking part of their training again and and taking exams and and waiting to see how it all works out with, with medicine in particular, it's tricky because people may need to do a new residency. And there aren't that many residency spots, even for Canadians. So certain fields just seem 
harder to get reestablished in Canada. You talk about certifications in in the book. You describe your own certifications and and the way that you have approached that, which is, I'm a PhD psychologist. I don't really feel like getting certified in all these other coaching certifications that you can uh, obtain because what I've done is actually far more difficult than going through the motions of this course to get that piece of paper that then tells you that I'm able to do you you know what you're hiring me to do and and it seems like that's worked out for you that people understand that when you explain it but has it ever come up where like no that is the only certification that we'll accept because that's the criteria that we've laid out for this position i suspect that it has come up and i just said okay well you do you and i'll do me (laughs) no no hard feelings you know because they or different organizations must have uh, or may have uh, good reasons for for setting themselves up in certain ways. And if there's no flexibility, then maybe I'm just not a good choice for them. But I think the point I was trying to make in the book is that sometimes the people who create job descriptions or job posters have kind of a wish list of things, and it may or may not be well considered. So if you know you can do the work, even if your designations are a little bit different, make your case. Right. Because quite often they'll they'll say, you know what? Yeah, you make a good point. I just didn't know people like you existed. Can you talk more? Can you come for an interview? Yeah, and you make an excellent point about uh, you specifically reference maybe somebody who's a novelist who's going to be teaching creative writing at a university, and the university may not even have considered a novelist. They've considered somebody who has a PhD in studying literature maybe not even the right person to teach that course, whereas a novelist obviously is, but a novelist may not feel like they can apply for that because they don't have the PhD in literature. And, uh, you know, just opening that door for yourself is Mm -hmm. a big message of the book, I think. And ironically, when I wrote that, it was, I don't know, maybe a year or, or longer before I actually knew of a situation that matches this. I actually now know a professor at the University of Guelph, who is a multi-time novelist. It's uh, it's Lawrence Hill. Okay. Oh, so, uh, it's so like it's literally novel. novelist creative writing, like match that yeah. exact. Uh, yeah. And, and I didn't have him in mind when I, when I wrote this. This was, you know, a, a different scenario. But uh, I guess in some respects, maybe life is now imitating art. <laughs> yeah, but there's no doubt. Students who... He's supporting now. I mean, oh my goodness. He's written fiction and he's written nonfiction successfully. Made even that transition from writing a book to having films made of it. So he is an absolute gem for those students. And so how would you relate that to somebody who's applying for any regular? Like I would say when I applied at the CPA myself, Mm -hmm. I felt like I was absolutely not qualified based on the criteria I read in the job posting. But I also thought that's a job I'd love to do. Let's just give it a go. And I feel like I'm good enough at the things that they're asking for that I can do the job. I just don't have them on my resume because I spent so long in radio that all I have really is radio 15 years. That's it. End of story. Right. So it worked out for me, but uh, I'm hoping that you can uh, just 
I don't know, I guess, generalize for other people who may look at a job posting and say, oh, I don't check all the boxes. I'm not going to do that. Well, there's some research that should, that suggests that uh, there's actually a gender difference. Whereas if a guy looks at a job posting and he knows he can do the work and he maybe checks, I don't know, 60, 70% of the boxes, he's still going to apply. He knows he can do it. Whereas with women, they may know they can do it, but not apply because maybe there's one or two out of like 15 criteria that they aren't sure they can do or they can't quite substantiate it, right? Maybe they don't have the right designation, even though they've got the experience and they could really hit the ground running and and be great. So I guess my advice is that if you know you can do the work, make your case, don't screen yourself out. Let somebody else actively screen you out, right? right. So you can explain, here's what I've done and here's why I'd be amazing in this new role. If it's in plain language, people are going to be reading it. They're nodding their head as they're reading it. And they're going to have to call you. For sure. And I get I, I definitely have benefited from my male overconfidence uh, in this particular circumstance, right? I wouldn't say that. I would say we have all benefited from your confidence that knowing you can do it and just saying, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring because you're part of the solution in terms of bringing psychology to Canadians. Well, years ago, I don't think we had that much of a, a profile. People didn't, you know, there were no podcasts. You couldn't talk to a psychologist or or know of one because there was no mechanism unless you already had some kind of relationship. So I think you're doing a great public service. Well, I appreciate that. I still uh, am a little awkward uh, taking compliments and and, and nice words. But I, I will say this sort of applies to another chapter in your book where certainly when I first started, right, everyone I'm working with has a PhD. They're all psychologists. They've all done way more school than I have. They know way more things than I do. And I had a lot of imposter syndrome for quite a while. I still on occasion do when I'm speaking to people who are qualified like you are. And very often in these podcasts, I will make the point, I am not a psychologist, so I do not have that sort of background that, you know, so don't don't take my opinions as that of a trained psychologist. But this is something, this is what I was going to say earlier, where the passage in your book that really spoke to me, and it, what you said is, when you're not steeped in the conventional wisdom of a given profession or domain, you can ask questions that haven't been asked before and approach problems in ways that others haven't considered, uh, which I think is one of the things that should encourage people who don't tick all the boxes to apply for something. And I think that might be the one thing that I have brought to this where I don't know anything and that's good because I can help others learn it as I do, right? Well, you know lots. You just don't know a ton about psychology. Right. But the regular world doesn't know a lot about psychology. So it's better to have somebody who you know, can ask the right questions so that it's actually interesting because some of the psychology stuff gets super specific and really we need somebody to shake it up a little bit and make it more relatable, ask the questions that people want want answered. I think the thing that really stood out to me the most is when you talk about, you know, Black, Indigenous, people of colour who experience imposter syndrome and they 
tend to internalize a lot of the time. Tell me if I'm mistaking this, if I'm reading too much into this chapter, but this idea of tokenism, right? That, oh, well, you only got your position because they had to check that box of indigenous. They had to check that box of black woman. They had to check that box. And therefore, you're not qualified. You make the case that that absolutely isn't a real thing, right? That more often than not, people of color are more qualified for those positions because they have to be in order to get them. And I'm wondering, you know, so often it seems that they would then internalize this idea of tokenism, which is coming from the dominant group. It's not Mm -hmm. coming from them, right? It's sort of being put on them. Can we educate that dominant group, right? Mostly white people, mostly men who believe this sort of thing and explain to them, show them that it's not real while also helping the people of color who are trying to make their way up that ladder not internalize it because it isn't real. Does that make sense? Am I Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I find tokenism to be one of the most insidious, awful things that's happening. And I remember a couple of years ago, I was absolutely struck when I heard about the U.S. college scandal. Remember a couple of years ago, there was all these celebrities and very rich people who are basically paying bribes and doing all kinds of things to get their kids into universities. Right. Faking their involvement in sports or whatever. Exactly. You know, creating fake portfolios to make the, the kid look like they were an athlete so that not only could they get in, but they could get in with a scholarship. Meanwhile, the kid couldn't swim or whatever. You know, fake you know, having SAT exams taken for their students, all kinds of things. And the part that really got me was that these were kids who were mediocre at best, or maybe weak students, who were given all kinds of advantages and given positions, prestigious positions in Ivy League schools, competitive schools. Right. Once they were there, I don't think they felt like tokens. They they had their their admission and they did the best they could with their opportunity. And so they themselves didn't probably didn't feel tokenized, but onlookers didn't tokenize them. Right. It was basically favoritism and these things happen all the time. Meanwhile, these kids took the spots of people who actually deserved them. And some of those kids who didn't get in were racialized, who were qualified. So to me, looking at that example, it's such a huge reminder of how when we get our shot, we should just make the best of it. Because these white kids who didn't deserve to be where they were, they didn't feel stigmatized or looked down themselves. So why should racialized people or other equity-deserving people who get a chance because they have earned it. They have bled to get there. Right. They need to shake that tokenism off and just do their thing. I think that I think we're moving in that direction. And one of the things that you reference a few times in the book is George Floyd. Mm-hmm. And in 2020, right, that murder galvanized a movement and really expanded far beyond just police overreach, police brutality, all of the terrible things police do, and actually started people thinking about racism in a different way, in Mm -hmm. a structural sense, in a systemic sense, Mm -hmm. right? And 
examining their own workplaces. Okay, how can we be more equitable, more diverse, more inclusive? How can we welcome in Mm -hmm. uh, people who we historically have not welcomed in? But at the same time, there's a whole other group who use this as a reason to dig in their heels, right? And, And sort of increased the level of belief that tokenism Mm -hmm. is real, that all of these things are real. So I'm wondering if, and I mean, this is probably too large a topic for a podcast or even a book, but where do we go from here in order to make this desire and uh, for equity and inclusion into real policy within an organization and more universal and widespread even in the face of those who have dug in their heels on the subject? Yeah, it's a, it's a huge question. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yes. And here's the thing. I mean, at the end of the day, especially in this moment, it seems that there's an imbalance where there are more people looking for good employees than there are good employees who are looking for work. So the right. pendulum has kind of shifted a little bit, right? Things have swung in favor of employees to some extent. So that being the case, if you want to have a workplace or a company or whatever where there's, where there's good people who can be productive and help you meet those objectives, hit your numbers, hit your bottom line, you need the best people. So I think it's smart to figure out how do we hire good people so that we can see them when they show up. So in other words, don't have a flawed process where you can't recognize the good people when they come along. Have a good process so that when you see good people and you run them through your process, the good ones emerge. They're the ones who, you know, they're obviously good. Choose those people. And so that's maybe getting people in the door and kind of just minimizing some of these existing biases. But the other hiccup is, well, if you bring good people in, keep those good people. Make sure you've got a culture that is attractive enough that people want to stay. Thank goodness, now we're at a stage where a lot of people are saying, you know what, I am not going to work in a place where there's rampant bullying, harassment, various forms of discrimination. They just don't want it. And they have better opportunities. And they have better opportunities to go to a place that does have a better culture. So I don't think that fair-minded people are saying, throw out the people you've got in your organization. I think they're saying, you know what? Let's start with as there's attrition and and there are new opportunities for people or opportunities to replace people, fix your process so you can get good people in the door over time, improve your culture so people want to stay. Yes. I In your chapter on toxic workplaces, mm-hmm. uh, you have some advices, advice for people on both sides of this, mm-hmm. uh, people who are applying for a job to sort of identify what might be a toxic workplace, and also people who are doing the hiring to identify who might be a toxic employee in ways that maybe we aren't really thinking about this right now, right? And in order to improve workplace culture, you want to make sure that you don't hire those people who may create that, right? And that's the thing. I mean, you can't... You can't make somebody who's unfriendly friendly, Uh, right? So if you hire people who are just naturally difficult and toxic and, you know, have those tendencies to exploit and misrepresent and manipulate, when you let those people in your workplace, you are in for trouble. But I don't think that most processes know how to screen some of that stuff out. 
sometimes we get swayed thinking we need to get people in who are super charming and charismatic. And sometimes those those qualities come along with some some dark sides that are not very desirable. So I think it's smart to figure out, well, what do you need? And just bring in people who can deliver that rather than getting sidetracked by some surface qualifications that I shouldn't even call them qualifications, surface characteristics that often come with a lot of uh, baggage. Right. And one of the things that I thought about a lot when you when you wrote it was that was the way that you approach somebody's references, right? The mm-hmm. language that that person uses to describe your potential employee, the way that they talk about them, right? And I think we've heard a fair amount over the last few years about people who will do anything to get a toxic employee out of their workplace, including writing a glowing cover letter for that person just to make sure that they're out of their own hair. They don't have to deal with firing them or disciplining them or actually dealing with their toxic behavior, just move them on to somewhere else, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that really speaks to I guess, a corporate culture that we're all probably a little familiar with. Well, that's it. But I know for sure when I'm doing reference checks, of course, I listen to what the referee says, but I also listen to how they say it and what's kind of uh, left unsaid, right? Like when somebody's qualifying something too much or they just don't give a full endorsement, there's some... You know, there's you, you can you can always tell when, well, at least I can usually tell when when somebody's trying not to say anything bad, but they are not really saying a lot that's good and glowing. Everything's qualified, right? And you know, for those who can't necessarily tell, there is now your book uh, that can help them uh, do that with some great advice in it. Uh, we are out of time, Helen. Thank you so much for being on Mindful with me. The book, How to Be Resilient in Your Career, Facing Up to Barriers at Work, is now available, and I'll put the link to find it in the show notes here for the podcast. So thank you. Thank you. Our time is, it goes so quickly. Thank you to Dr. Helen Ofosu for taking the time to speak with me today on Mindful. And thank you to you at home for listening, streaming, and downloading today's episode. How to be resilient in your career, facing up to barriers at work, is now available. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Today's episode was written, hosted, and published by me, Eric Bowman. Our producer and editor is Jamie Montgomery. Our theme song is Avenues by David Taylor.